0: This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So I, I entitled the talk tonight "Engaged Brahmaviharas" because throughout the experience of uh, those various um, actions that Christy was mentioning, what I noticed is that coming to um, engaged action from a Buddhist perspective required the use of those four sublime abidings to be able to set our intention in a clear and proper way and to be able to participate in a way that's really effective and balanced and harmless. And also learning that um, taking action in the world to relieve suffering is an incredibly potent way to practice. So my definition that I'm uh, using these days for myself uh, for engaged Buddhism is time we take action to relieve the suffering of living beings according to the Dhamma so promoting what's wholesome and preventing the unwholesome and engaging from the the standards and the principles and the guidance of the Buddha and the in in this way engagement really has a has a lot of options so whenever we're taking action to relieve suffering that covers a lot of territory you know it's it's like relieving chronic hunger and malnutrition but it's also helping people as when they're ill or when they're dying Um, being a good friend providing comfort and good counsel and support helping people understand the Dharma. Um, you're going to hear from people during this series who have done other things like teaching Buddhism in prisons. Um, I helped my mother as she was um, close, becoming, coming close to death and as she died. This is all engagement. Engagement. I don't exactly know how we started to think that Buddhist could, Buddhism could be unengaged, actually. Because as nuns, uh, as bhikkhunis, we live by the standard of the vinaya that the Buddha gave, and we're required to be engaged with lay people every day for our food. We're not allowed to grow food or buy food or cook food. And if you want to eat, the Buddha said, (laughs) you better be engaged. (laughs) So um, I think that truly, the way the Buddha lived his life, extremely engaged, walking, teaching, being available, almost all the time. There are times to go into retreat, which are crucial, of course, as you know, I'm sure. But in general, it's a life of being engaged and giving, and this is what I've seen with the with the great teachers, monks who I monks and nuns who I feel have traveled a long way down this path to enlightenment. They're just constantly serving. There isn't anything else to do once you know that the world isn't going to give you happiness. <laughs> so don't overlook your own engagement efforts, even if you're not out marching or um, you know doing some of these more um, what do I want to say extreme actions. <laughs> Okay, so why the Brahma Viharas? Why loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity? We can start with our intention. So if, if we come to an action, whether it's standing up um, for social justice Or climate justice, or um, providing care for the sick, or whatever it is, if we come to it with an intention for some kind of gain for ourselves, it's a very limited gift and it's a very limited return. I remember. Once a friend took me to hear His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak in San Jose at the convention, I think it was at the convention center, and it was this huge room. I think there were, I don't know, 12,000 people in there or something. It's huge. And he said that if any idea of some kind of personal gain would come from his teaching, it would ruin it. Now that doesn't mean that a fleeting thought about how we might be seen as good or praised or whatever is something to feel bad about. We can't really control the things that come into our mind from previous karma. It's like tuning a radio. You know, you can get anything coming through on the channel. Do we still tune radios? <laughs> anyway, you didn't get the idea. <laughs> But the but the thoughts that we give energy to those are the ones we're responsible for. So we want to be sure that our intentions are pure. And how do we do that? If we're really coming from a place of compassion, because what is karuna? Compassion's a, a kind of um, challenging English translation for it because it has that suffer with meaning, and that's not really what karuna is. Karuna is you see suffering and you want to change it. You want to help. And you, and you do something to help. It's not just something we cultivate in meditation. It's something we cultivate in action. And that intention to help doesn't have like some kind of personal benefit coming our way. So that's that's how we can know our intentions are, are good. Come to it from the Brahma Viharas. Now, there are four and they have different purposes. As you might know already, in case you don't, we'll think about these in terms of engaged Buddhism. So Metta, loving-kindness, is that ability, that willingness, that quality that brings love to all situations. And it is really unconditional love. Now, we don't translate it that way because that would lead us to the kinds of ideas of love that have attachment associated with them, and that's not what metta is. It's unattached. That's what makes it unconditional. It's not like we have to have those beings show up in any particular way. It just shines like the sun. But the mental state of metta is uplifting and beautiful. There's no ill will there if metta's there because there's no room for it. There's no anger. And this is one of the things that people tell me that keeps them from getting engaged. And they were participating in some kind of war, anti-war rally at some point and found a lot of hostility among the participants. And so I don't want to go to a climate march. What they don't know is how joyful the climate marches are, which brings us to another Brahma Vihara, Modita, appreciative joy. If we can keep our actions, engagement, appreciative, um, grateful, filled with joy, even when someone you love is dying and you're there to support them, that gratitude to even be able to be there at that time, to be able to celebrate the life Um, that that person has had to be able to appreciate the miracle of death. These are the kinds of things that can come through if we keep the mind in that wholesome state. Each one of these Brahma-viharas is a wholesome state of mind. And even though uh, the Buddha, well, even though the noble truths are usually translated surrounding suffering, which is actually... The words are dukkha, which is a wider range than just suffering, as many of you know. Anything from that doesn't really feel quite complete to um, full-on suffering. The truth is that the Buddha promoted happy, peaceful mental states. He wanted us to encourage joy in our practice, and in our lives, and in our minds. I mean, it reminds me of a story that a monk that I admire a lot named Ajahn Punadamo, tells. In case you haven't ever listened to his talks, you might look him up on Dharma Seed. Punadamo. He said that he got a question one time when he was giving a talk. And the person said, why do you... Buddhists always talk about suffering. You're so negative. And he said, Well, that's not fair. We also talk about sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, and actually, <laughs> rather, um, the Buddha wanted to encourage. Piti and Sukha, so joy and happiness and pleasant feeling. But these would be coming not from worldly, material sense pleasures, but from the kinds of experiences that you get with the Brahma Viharas. Unworldly pleasure unworldly joy, what comes from giving and serving and loving and caring and being compassionate and kind and generous. So, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and then we have this fourth one, equanimity. This one has a few different qualities about it for one thing it's a wisdom quality now in almost all of these lists that the Buddha gave you'll have some quality one or more qualities that are wisdom qualities always if you think about the four, the the Noble Eightfold Path for example the first two factors of right view and right intention are wisdom qualities If you think about the five strengths or the five powers, you have Panya, which is translated as wisdom. You can also find in the seven factors of enlightenment that you have investigation of states, that's a wisdom quality. And you have Upeka as the seventh quality, equanimity. It's actually the jumping off point right into Nibbana, It's when the mind is even and steady, no matter what's coming into it. It doesn't get moved by what's enjoyable or what's difficult. No matter how harsh, no matter how beautiful, the mind is steady, even, peaceful calm and wise and clear. So equanimity helps us to know what to engage in, how deeply to go, when to step back and take care of yourself. So when we use these Brahma Viharas, and by the way, equanimity is what needs to be um, pervading the mind when there is very, very unwholesome action around us out there. So one of the, when we come back, come back for a moment to our intention and this idea of there often being um, elements that are unsavory involved in engagement, things that are disgusting, things that are threatening, people who are angry, people who are unskillful, being unskillful. This is where the Brahma-viharas really protect us. Because with equanimity, we can hold that in an even way and know when to get out of the way. And we can address someone else's anger with peace and goodwill. And wisdom. It's like... As long as we can keep that positive mental state, we don't go down. And also, sometimes people have told me that they can't participate when there's suffering because it overwhelms them. It makes them sad. And what that is, is an indication of some healing inside that needs attention and care. Because compassion doesn't make us sad. Karuna fails when it becomes sorrow. It succeeds when it becomes the ability to hold that tenderness and kindness and give help. And it uplifts the heart to do that. So it's not like we should feel bad if we become sad, ever. But we can know that this is actually not a wholesome, uplifting mental state that leads to awakening. In fact, there's a teaching in the Abhidhamma that says that all of these mental states that come because of painful feeling, whether it's anger or grief, or sorrow, or fear, that there's no constructive use for them. Now, fear maybe is a little debatable because fear that arises in the body that tells us there's something dangerous keeps us safe, yeah? But when we talk about anger, for example, there's nothing constructive in anger. Now, this is something that is very buddhist (laughs) the buddha made clear there's no benefit it's an unwholesome mental state to know that that's not the place we want to draw energy from for action so what do we do with feelings that arise it's not to feel bad about them or guilty about them it's just to know okay this is not constructive so what do I need to do well, one good method is to feel it, but don't feed it. Feel it, but don't feed it. So we, have, we feel the rush of anger. Same thing for the rush of lust. Same thing for the rush of fear. Whatever it is coming through, noticing it being present with it, feeling it in the body and not feeding it or clinging to it, allowing it to pass without taking action on it. None of us can guarantee that we won't feel anger or that we won't feel sadness or that we won't feel jealousy or hatred or the whole list, right? But we can decide not to act. Or speak from those mental states. We can make that promise. That's what the precepts are for. So the four Brahma Viharas are incredibly beneficial. They also require some support. First of all, from mindfulness. Well, first of all, maybe first of all from precepts. Virtue. And from mindfulness. So that we're present and aware The whole Noble Eightfold Path is needed. But when we pick up the practice of these Brahma-viharas as a way to direct the mind, once we've felt what we feel, turn the mind, infuse the mind with the appropriate Brahma-vihara that's needed in that moment, Noticing how we can really lift the mind up. And that it's conducive to our, our development of our practice. Whether we're practicing in engagement or we're practicing in solitude. On meditation. It's like being able to develop the mind through these Brahma Viharas can lead us all the way to Nibbana. You can have deep concentration using metta, metta jhana, people call it. That equanimity cultivated to its maximum potential means a completely cooled mind. Like I said, it's the jumping off point. The seventh of the enlightenment factors, the, the seventh and last of the enlightenment factors. So, this is a powerful practice. And I'm uh, grateful that there are ways using the Dhamma that are happy, uplifting, and beneficial. All along the way, step by step. Each of the Brahma Viharas has a a near enemy and a far enemy. Metta overcomes anger and ill will. That's its far enemy. Its near enemy is affection. When we have attachment, it's not really metta. It's not really loving kindness. So we have to always be watching the mind so that it doesn't blend something in there that doesn't really help, that like gets in the way. Karuna, I already said that the failure is when it makes us sad. The success is when we really have this very strong desire to help when we see suffering. Modita. Of course, the far enemy is jealousy, envy, competition. You know, when, when other beings are doing well, if we feel jealous, then modita is a good antidote. Be appreciative, be happy for them. This actually works. Um, the near enemy is uh, to appreciative joy is a kind of frivolous giddiness, like excitement. Uh, Appreciative joy doesn't have that quality. All of these Brahma-viharas are very deep, calm. And equanimity, um, the far enemy, of course, is restlessness and anxiety and so on, but the near enemy is indifference, apathy. Apathy. So sometimes people feel like, "Oh, I'm a quantumist; I don't care." But that's that's a worldly kind of equanimity where you just like, "Oh, if it's French dressing or Thousand Island, so what?" (laughs) That's not the enlightenment factor that we're looking for. (laughs) So, um, equanimity can be engaged. And needs to be engaged. I've been, um, as I mentioned when we first sat down, I've been using these Brahma Viharas in meditation more recently, really finding it valuable, uplifting. (laughs) peace-inducing, <laughs> joy-inducing. <laughs> and I feel like if we use our mindfulness to notice our mental states through the day, regardless of what we're doing, and we notice when we have uh, something other than one of these brahmaviharas um, pervading the mind, Call one in see what that does. You know, there are so many times we can feel irritated or disgruntled or sucked into the excitement or agitation of the news or a little depressed or whatever, right? Just try it. See if bringing up some appreciative joy or compassion. One of the important pieces of equanimity is that the reflection is generally around the universal qualities of living beings, such as we are all subject to our, the results of our own karma. So when we're disgusted by what we see in the news, some people's behaviors or disgusted by what's happening to forestall the efforts that need to be made to prevent devastating climate change, for example, or whatever it might be, considering that all beings are subject to the results of their own actions. That's one thing. And another thing to consider is something that um, I hear comes from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, is that the way he reflects on equanimity is that this being wants happiness. It does not want pain and suffering. And no matter what human beings are engaged in, they want happiness. They do not want pain and suffering. And when we reflect on that, being by being, specific beings, then we can really come to a place of equanimity in the mind. And he said it needs to be specific beings you you gain this you develop this equanimity towards living beings towards situations towards me, you know mental states towards everything by using specific things that you're that you're observing so person by person considering how they wish for happiness and not suffering And this, in meditation also, it's important that our meditation isn't fuzzy, like just like general, but that our focus is really on specific objects and we know exactly what we are um, mindful of. And even if we're using kind of a technique where we're observing whatever is coming through, it's a rapid succession of objects that you can clearly identify, not a fuzzy general awareness. That's kind of a dulling practice. We want the mind bright, crisp. Otherwise, it's not going to realize reality. The truth of the way things are that frees us from suffering. So, I hope this practice and these words are helpful, and I would like to hear from you your questions and also any observations around what the guided meditation was like for you or actually anything else. Yes. Is it selfish to want happiness from being kind and compassionate or loving to other beings? No, it is not selfish to want happiness. It is wise to cultivate our happiness and to reflect on the good that we do. The Buddha encouraged this continually in the suttas. When you know you have a positive mental state, he said, recognize you have a positive mental state and develop that. Uh, when, you, when you know you have done something good, recall that you've done something good. It helps to build the good. So no, it's not a selfish thing at all. This is something that I think I came into this lifetime confused by because there's so much joy in giving. It's like, how can I ever do a selfless act? Well, forget about being self or selfless and just act in good Kindness and wholesome and feel the the joy and the positive experience of that and use that to fuel your awakening. Yes. Yes, a mental feeling. Yes, mental feeling and a feeling that mental states have associated with them. So, when you feel anger, you can feel things happening in your body. It's not the same as a pain in your knee, which is a physical feeling. So, a mental feeling registers in the body... You can feel it in the body. It might be the tightness of your stomach or somewhere in your body you'll feel it. It's the same for other emotions. Right? And that's important because you can use the body to process those feelings. And when, when I invited you to bring loving-kindness to the heart. Did you feel something? Raise your hand. Okay. You don't have to be able to define it or name it, but there's a feeling. There's um, a book called Focusing that was written by Eugene Genlin, I think is the way you pronounce his name, many, many years ago now. Um... Some of us are old enough to remember that. (laughs) And he talked about felt sense. I think he was the first one to use that term, as far as I know, felt sense. A felt sense is something that comes from sensory sensory input, some kind of input, like you're looking at a picture of some puppies and there's a felt sense. There's something you feel. You're looking at a picture of a mountain and a lake and there's a different felt sense. And if you go through a picture book and look and you notice what's coming up in your system, you start to get a sense of what it's like to feel. According to it's just an image that comes into the mind and the the five khandas are engaged. You've got your your perceptions and consciousness there, identifying that and then and there's some feeling in the body. Now, the Buddha uses this idea of the body knowing in your body. He says that in some of the suttas. You will know the truth with your body. That's a felt sense. So, this is important to, I think, this is very important to practice with. Does that answer your question? Please go ahead. <laughs> it's usually between the chin and the mm, abdomen. I w- are you know, I don't know how low it goes, but it doesn't have to be limited. It's mainly about knowing. And sometimes you couldn't. I don't know if you can always place it somewhere, but a lot of times you can, especially if it's a strong emotion. Um, and then that you can use that the somatic um, experience to process that. But I don't. I wouldn't limit it to that necessarily. Like, like I was um, encouraging you in the meditation to feel it in the heart center. Like, you, this is something you're, you're calling forth, and then to spread it. So you can spread a feeling through your body, to your toes. It doesn't have to be limited in the mid. But usually, if you're looking for where a strong feeling is presenting, it's usually in that, the torso, abdomen, somewhere. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes. Mhm. Mhm. So how does it work when seeing suffering calls up you you feel sad and and also the wish to help do you wait until you've gotten through all your own healing before you help well no not necessarily and and in some cases it's always walking side by side you know like when my mother was dying right I mean, I've done a lot of work on death reflection, so I think it was it was an extremely powerful experience. But of course there's also the arising of, you know, processing how it feels that she's never gonna walk again, that she's never gonna talk to me again, that she's never you know, on and on. Those every every day a new loss, right? So what do you do? It's like what we need to do all the time with our practice. We notice like some mental state arises that we, we know is not constructive, and we work with it. We feel it as far as it needs to be felt. We set it aside and don't feed it with more thoughts that bring up the same thing. And we work with bringing in positive mental states to help it. So this is the process as we do our work in engage, engagement. No, if we all have to wait till we're completely healed before we help, we're in big trouble. (laughs) Yeah. And it can heal us to help. So this is part of the practice. Yes, in the back. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the question is whether or not we can effectively use metta, karuna, and mudita without equanimity. Or do we need, the question is, do we need to cultivate equanimity first? Um, I don't think it needs to be quite in, in order. I mean, we... Again, it's a little like, do we have to be completely healed before we help? Because all of these things can be um, cultivated in, like, interleaving ways. So we all have a certain amount of equanimity already. And we need to develop it. But we, we can also be developing the other three. It's not as though uh, there's one first. I think we need to use the one that's needed in the moment and then use that to strengthen the other factors and bring them all kind of along together. That's how I see it in my own practice. I really feel like even with other teachings of the Buddha, where he, um, like, the, like so let's say the four foundations of mindfulness, I've heard people say, well, you start by developing mindfulness of the body, and you make sure you get that really well in hand, and then you can go on to mindfulness of feeling, and you don't get to mindfulness of dharma until, like, 20 years into the practice. Literally, I mean, people, okay, I don't feel that way. I think it's important to cultivate mindfulness of each of the four foundations to start to get a handle on it, understand how it works, how it feels. We have to be able to engage with, uh, with feeling, with our mental states, and with the Dhamma to the degree we understand it, and then keep purifying, keep increasing, keep letting the different... Parts, the different foundations support the development of one another, and the same with the Brahmaviharas. I would say, uh, I think that we can get very stuck in protocols, and if you t- if you look at a teacher like Ajahn Mahabua who was the Arahant of the age, he said, "Don't worry about getting this first and that second and that third. Just take what you've got and scramble up the mountain." Yes. My question kind of I see of the I see other uh-huh, Okay. Uh, okay. Feel sad. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first thing I want to say. So the the question is um, how to how to cultivate equanimity, and feeling. And the statement was that it feels to you like the other three. Um, loving kindness, compassion, and appreciative joy are really for other people, not for ourselves. And we, we need something for ourselves and that your sense is that equanimity is what helps us, but how do you cultivate it? And you also mentioned that you feel um, sadness when you feel other people's suffering that makes you sad. So what I want to say first is that it's very important that we... Practice each of these Brahmaviharas for ourself and for others. That it's not for other people alone. And neither is our practice. The Buddha said, practice for yourself and for others. That's the best way to practice. Even your meditation is for yourself and for others. So you have loving kindness for yourself. You have loving kindness. You have compassion for yourself. You have appreciative joy for your own goodness and your own. It's not just about jealousy of others. That's one thing that it can combat. But it's for your own gladness for yourself, too. To rejoice in your own, good, your own goodness every day, without exception. So these qualities can help us heal and when compassion, and this, another thing that sometimes people will say is that I hate loving kindness. <laughs> because we're forcing the mind. So when the mind says, no, I don't want to practice that, then it needs some loving kindness. <laughs> so you turn it toward you. And the Buddhist, the The guided meditation I gave is right out of the suttas. It's the standard text that the Buddha used again and again and again, or it's used again and again and again in the suttas. And it's always for others, like it is for myself. It's always both ways. Okay, so that's the first thing. Make sure it's two directional. And make sure that when compassion, when there's, as you said, feeling too much for others, that's a feeling with an attachment and an idea of self in it. When we are not, when, we, when that's what's happening, we need to look at what's going on inside us. We need to look at what our needs are that are not being met. What our, where our suffering is that we have not allowed ourselves to go It's our suffering that's the trouble, not their suffering. It's what it touches inside that's unhealed. So we want to work with that and heal it. Now, how do we practice equanimity? We can all practice equanimity and strengthen it right in this moment and any moment. And the way you do it is we watch the good and the bad, the ugly and the beautiful coming through the mind. The way to practice equanimity is to observe. Ah, there's something that's making me excited and wanting to to grasp and cling. And there's something that makes me want to push away and recoil. And I'm just going to watch it. And that watching, as that gets stronger, that's equanimous. It's observing. And of course, for a long time, we are going to lean over this way and want to grab, and we are going to push away and want to get rid of, but we know we're doing it. And gradually, there will be less grabbing on and less pushing away, and then pretty soon, there isn't any (laughs) more. I think it's 9 o'clock. I just want to commend you for your practice and enjoy it and enjoy each other. Um, Thank you.